Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, this is Teresa Kariakis, your favorite punk rock imagist, and I'm with you on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey everyone, today we have acclaimed academic, film and television producer, writer, and award-winning documentary filmmaker Stuart Samuels on My Rock Moment. And Stuart was most recently the co-producer and co-director for the documentary The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, which came out earlier this month. And as many of you know, May Pang was my guest on the last episode. But in this episode, we're going to dive into quite a bit. We'll discuss his groundbreaking music and variety show Night Flight, which came out in the early 80s. Who here remembers Night Flight? We'll hear about how he spearheaded some of the first high-definition music videos that came out in the 80s. We'll discuss the making of Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years, which was a Beatles documentary he did with Ron Howard. And we'll talk about the making of The Lost Weekend, a love story as well. There was also one rock documentary he did that sadly never came to be. And we'll find out more about that as well. As I said, there's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on My Rock Moment. No, my pleasure. I know you've been busy. I mean, congratulations first off. Mm -hmm. Last week was the premiere, right? Right. Yeah, the Lost Weekend. Exactly. The Lost Weekend, a love story. I thought you were a director. Right. How did it go? It went great. I mean, it's like, you know, when you make products like this, when you make movies, particularly in this day, you know, most uh, most of the time you see it on a small screen. And sure. you and you kind of like go through all this work and, you know, you don't really see how people react to it. You know, I come from a world where I get immediate reaction. I'm a professor. You know, I, I can see you know, <laughs> you know, the kind of immediate response to something. So the chance to see it in a theater, in a big the- in a theater, in a big screen and with an audience, uh, at, it gives you kind of a, a relationship to the product that you know, you don't normally get, you know, do they laugh at the right lines? What's the, te- you know, the, the mood and feeling of the room and how to respond? Because all of that is part of the creativity. 
but you never right. really get you never really get the end result often in this world today. You exactly, know? and your connection to it becomes so subjective. Yeah. That yeah. you can't separate yourself from it. Well, I can tell you, I was there that night yeah. and I was surrounded by laughter and lots of comments and yeah. everything. So it really, um, it moved people. I mean, that's, I think that's all really what, uh, what we're all about in terms of creativity, you know, whether, I mean, your, your, your podcast is about rock. I mean, rock is a force, you know, it's a force. And that force manifests itself in these expressions, you know, and and the ones that survive are the ones that take you somewhere, that put you through an emotional experience that it could be anger, it could be joy, it could be whatever. But if it's, you know, it, you really have to have that relationship with the product for it to have some kind of enduring value, I think. And that's why rock still has that, because it. Uh, it, it delivered that expression, that feeling, you know, in the music, in the lyrics, in the, in the, and that's why it's still endearing and enduring. Yeah. Well, this was a powerful film, you know, and yeah, all the, if you're a rock lover, if you're a Beatles yeah. lover, you could not walk away from this and not feel something. Yeah. So I guess that's my question to you. What made you want to participate in a project like this? Well, you know, I, it's sort of, it goes back to you know, uh, it's my my career or my life or you know what everybody you know everybody has a vocation, you know? mm-hmm. right? My vocation really started out as a teacher and still is. Uh, I, I, that was you know when you ask somebody what your vocation is, you know, uh, you're a communicator, you're a journalist, you're whatever you know, writer, be whatever. So, so for me, that was you know I was want, I want, I felt I wanted to teach. And and then I sort of narrowed in on what I wanted to teach about was what I called um, um, popular culture or, uh, or or mass culture, 20th century culture. And what drew me to all my subjects that I've ever done work with is I'm interested in that period from in the post-war, particularly and particularly in the beginning of rock, which was from I see from '62 all the way up. You know, through the, uh, through the '80s, was the critical moment of our of our lives. That is, that's when things changed. That's when the that's where the old order was replaced by a new order, and we're mm-hmm. in that context of that. So for me, I always wanted to teach about that. So mm-hmm. I became in my early life. I you know I was a very heavy duty academic. I mean, I have a PhD from Stanford. I have a, a postgraduate degree from Oxford. I've written books on uh, uh, on the Auden generation, on the Bloomsbury movement, you know, on politics. This was what my life was about for the book, first part of my life, where uh, I was a, a, a teacher, a, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I taught there in the history department. Uh, and I was teaching history of ideas. That was the subject that I was hired to do. Mm-hmm. And I would lecture on 20th century culture. And so about, this was about 1968, 69. I had just come back from England, uh, having experienced that whole world. You know, I, my life was like in, in the 60s, I was, at, uh, I was at Stanford from 61 to 64. And then I went to Oxford from 64 to 68. And then I started at University of Pennsylvania in 69. And 
that's wow. when all the universities just exploded, right? And I find myself in this academic Ivy League university, sort of like one of the youngest professors there at that time. And the students were rebelling. And they were rebelling in the curriculum, said, we want courses that are more relevant to what we're interested in, right? So I was teaching a course on the history of popular culture or, or 20th century culture, you know, English culture and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, why don't, you know, students, I wasn't particularly interested, it's actually students really like to go to movies, films. Why don't I teach a course on the history of the 20th century culture using the films of different countries and compare and contrast the films? And what does it tell you about the cultures in the time? Yeah. So I just made that up. <laughs> and I started teaching, you know, I started teaching that way. So that's what I did for 10 years in kind of thinking about popular culture by using feature films as a way to understand the culture. So when I was thinking about doing something else, uh, I said, I have to do something that I don't have to go up the ladder all again. I don't have to start <laughs> at the bottom, right? Bottom of God and Greece. So I was looking around, what is there out there that's like that now? This is 1980, right? 81. So I realized music videos, you know, because this was the beginning of music videos. This was when a whole new, you know, anybody else who was involved with music at that time. Nobody had more experience than anybody else because that's MTV wasn't out yet, but yeah, yeah music backwards. videos were happening. Right. So I happened to be, get to be friends with a person who, uh, uh, working for a company called ATI, which is a record music company at that time, uh, where we put on, uh, we put, actually, we were up and running on the USA Network, which was a cable, you know, cable network at that time, two weeks before MTV. And the show was called Night Flight. And so my friend said, well, you know, nobody else knows anything different. And I came up with the idea, I said, you know, what's different about Night Flight? MTV is, paid, is based on the model of radio, top 40 radio. That mm -hmm. is, it was all about rotation. You know, and that's why, you know, that's why there were no black acts on MTV because there was no rotation until Michael Jackson was able to get to the top of the chart. So MTV right. had that model and they had the live DJ model. So I said, that's stupid. I'm an historian. He says, you know, I would get 200 videos a week in my office from all over the world because that's what people were doing. They were just, all the bands, all the groups were making music videos, right? And they were trying to get on the air to be seen. So what I said, why don't we just, treat music videos like, like subjects. So I, so I started putting together hour of heavy metal, an hour of new wave, an hour of, you know, what, so all this of the- Regularly scheduled type stuff. So we knew that at 11 p.m. it was gonna be heavy metal hour. Or well, something. yeah, no, actually, if so Friday night, what we had, which was an amazing time, from Friday night at midnight to four in the morning, New York time, this was because there wasn't a time shift at that time. On the USA, net, the USA network, you would tune in to Night Flight. We had a four hour window, but they were all based on content. So I would have takeoff to animation or takeoff to uh, 
English bands or take off to Elvis or take off, you know, so I would accumulate the number of the videos that dealt with that subject. And I would write, you know, uh, text that would give you transitions from one to the other. So the so there would be an hour of that. Then there would be an hour of say heavy metal. Then maybe an hour of new age uh, animation. Then maybe another hour of reggae. Uh, you know, and this was every week for eight hours. And then Saturday we would show films, music films. And then I would take new and old, they'd come in and it'd be Tommy one day or right, exactly right. Or you know, or you know, magical mysteries or whatever, because nobody was playing this on television at that. And we were cable. So the idea of cable is if you had a cable in in nineteen eighty two, right, you would get the USA network free. It would be our cable, right? And but it was no time shift. So our show went on the air at 12 o'clock in New York time, which meant that it was on nine o'clock in LA time. And, you know, and all of a sudden, whose parents who got one out for the evening, they we found this out later, nine, 10 year old, 11 year old kids were just going, you know, we're going through and all of a sudden they come upon the show with this weird stuff and this amazing new music and so forth. And, and all of a sudden, this is how a lot of people got introduced to as nine or 10 year olds to this because there was no censorship in that way. And we repeated it. So we had a time slot from 12 o'clock at night to eight in the morning. Oh my goodness. Friday night and Saturday. Friday and, night. So essentially and, your teaching, your academic background was yeah. really preparing you or, or allowing you to hone yeah. your skills at bringing pop culture to the masses. And the show was on for five years. So why did you stack up against MTV? Obviously you gave them a run for their money somehow. Absolutely, you know, but what we did is every artist who came into New York, particularly British artists or black artists or European artists or African artists, had nowhere to go. So we, we, and we had Lisa Robinson, who was our interviewer, you know, and I would interview. So, you know, then Ozzy Osbourne would come in, we'd put him in a studio, I'd sit down and interview him for an hour. And we would then build, we built all of these interviews. We had hundreds you of hours. You were doing all the interviews? Yeah. We were doing, and we had a hundred, we've done a hundred hours of interviews. It's still on, you know, you can go onto the, the website called Night Flight Plus. And you can see all these, all these, all these films, all these programs that, that were done at that time. Yeah. So since you were the one doing the interviews, tell me some standouts. Some of them were really some very important. Like, for example, uh, Frank Zappa. So there was a period when the uh, Frank Zappa was very much against the idea of rating records. Remember that? Is that right? He had the TMRC and everything. Right, all that stuff, right. So I sat down with him and said, let's do a program, you know, that where he basically has he he sort of is lecturing yeah he talks about all this and then we show videos and we do exam we actually scripted it out so he did sit there and we would just i would you know ask him questions and he you know he would answer and then later on we would take his ed- edits and then wrap them around videos as examples and i did that with ozzy osborne did that with prince did that with with uh uh, all the New York acts, they were, you know, because we were the alternative. They could never, a lot of these acts couldn't get onto MTV. So we became an outlet for a lot of them. A lot of the acts couldn't get onto, onto MTV because they weren't big enough at that point? Or right, because their model, a- so 
think about this. If you're a heavy metal act, you know, metallic or, or whatever, or, you know, or, or, or any of the, uh, you know, big alternative bands that were coming out and they, they didn't have any record play. They would not play, be played on MTV because they would not be in the selection of videos that they look at because they are only related to top 40 videos. So, right. so a heavy metal band doesn't get into the top 40. So they don't get put on the air. We did that with reggae. We did that with uh, street music. We did that with new wave music. Uh, Especially they're coming on and they're seeing too that you're also interspersing it with interviews with icons like Frank Zappa, Ozzy Osbourne. This creates quite a bit of legitimacy too. How was it interviewing Prince? Because he was such an odd character as the years and years went on. You know, he got even stranger. I love Prince. Please, for anybody listening, make no mistake there. But for you to get the opportunity to talk with these people that are on the cusp of stardom, there's some normalcy to them. You know, they just want to make it. That it that's an incredible place to yeah. be. No, no. And it was kind of, you know, you're in the middle of it. Music at that time, the center of music was New York, as opposed to where it is LA. Because New York had MTV and we were there. And it was like, you know, New York was a, a place you can hear music and listen to music. It had a lot more venues that you could go to. So a lot of people came to, and at, particularly at this time, the English started to come over. So all, so basically you did by record labels. You had contacts at every record label. And what the record labels do was send you whatever they made that week in terms of their artists uh, uh, on music video. So we would get, that's why I was saying, the way I started the program initially, I guess, I would have videos that come to the office and I literally three quarter inch videos. They were, you know, the, this was the format. You have to watch them all. And I said, okay, these look good. And I did like, for example, a series on leather and lace. So I did all the videos that, that showed leather or lace in it, you know, as a, you know, as a, or, as, or animation or, you know, so I would organize them thematically. So we would experiment with a lot of stuff like that. And, and it was an amazing time. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's get back to the interview. Let's jump to 1986 here because at this point you team up with um is big I want to make sure I'm saying his his name correctly. He's big well, he said, here's how you say rib chin ski. Rib chin ski, right? My goodness, well, that is a mouthful of a name, but right, he's right. an Academy Award winning right. uh, film well, and music video director, and you teamed up with them to do the first HD music video. Yeah, well, what happened was, and this is what, so I was doing, you know, Life Life from 1981, 82, three, four, five, you know, four or five years, and it was a lot of programs, almost 2,000 hours, and it's a lot of programs. And what, so I would do interviews, and what we did, we were the first ones to put the director's name on the video. Okay. As, oh, yeah, wow. yeah. And so we had, and, and just as an academic and as looking, you know, I said, I treated the video directors very much like I think I would treat the cinema directors. So we would have interviews with every, you know, the major video directors who were working at that time, particularly the Godly and Cream from Europe and all these people who were doing all the great new music, the Duran Durans, well, all those music. Yeah, videos, I mean, all, all these people, Those were right? masterpieces, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so. So I did a, I would always, we would bring them in and interview them. So one time, uh, Zabig, uh, who was a video director, he had done uh, the, uh, the uh, Art of Noise video, the famous Art of Noise with the, with the piano and, the, and, and the, uh, the chainsaws and all. And so I said, let's bring him in and interview him. You know, and he didn't speak, you know, so the way he interviewed, it was very difficult. So, because he didn't speak English very well, right? But he, he brought his early stuff uh, and we put it all together. And I started looking at his early work and everything. And I said, this man's a genius. This, I mean, this, this is beyond any 
kind of uh, ability from in terms of making you know visual imagery or communicating with the new this medium of, of of film and video. And I said, there's sometimes in life where you sort of like take a step back. So I said, I need to help him because he had no voice. He didn't yeah. speak English. He yeah, he was a genius. He worked for Saturday Night Live for a while, but he you know he you know how does he get work? How does you know? So I sort of left them. I left Nightflight and 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 work and became and set up a company with him called Zubig Vision, which is still his his company. And I went and just as I was doing that, one day this is about 1987. So we get an invitation to go see a, a demonstration in New York of a new system that Sony was looking to present called high definition. Hmm. So we go. And they show us, you know, the high definition on a big screen. And it's a big and, and it's brilliant. Realize this is the answer. Because up to that point, film, you know, was the dominant thing. And video uh, was, was, was not really high level quality, right? So the big sort of saw this as a revolution. And so he, we talked to Sony. Sony sent over a whole system of production, set up a whole production unit. And I, as a, his producer, went to the record company and say, look, here's this great producer. We want to do music videos. So they, you know, they said, okay, here's some people who can try. And we did Cameo. We did Herb Alpert. We did Chicago. We did uh, Simple Minds. We did Pace Pet Stop Boys. Music videos that, that yeah. you did. So for Chicago, what was the music video? I don't even remember the name, but with the, where they're all, they're all in the water together. They're all sort of yeah, uh, you know, Super Tramp. We did Super Tramp. We did Mick Jagger's a uh, solo video. Let's work. We did Herb yeah. Alpert. Yeah, you know, boy, he's walking along the uh, New York on a, a tightrope. We yeah. did you know, we did Lou Reed's uh, original rapper. So one of the videos, this was almost 87, I think it was 87. Sony says to us, we want it, it's a big, it's a big was a, we want to do a demonstration video to show the value of this, this new technique of high definition production. That's really what they're interested in. They weren't interested in just the lines. They were interested as a production model, right? So uh, they wanted examples of that. So uh, we went to Yoko Ono. At that time, this was 1987, I think it was, and said to Yoko, uh, and the idea was, you know, at, in in Central Park, there's the ima the imagined space with the, the benches on it, and the idea initially was that we were, because we were able to repeat the imagery, you can take all of those seats, and we can have new people come on all those seats, all you know, by by morph by sort of a compositing them in. With this new system, this was technique. It was all special effects. It was live special effects, basically. We did it live, and so we go to Yoko, asking her to give us the Strawberry Fields, maybe as a as a song that we would do a music video on. So she said, "No, I don't want to give you Strawberry Fields. I want to give you Imagine." So she gave us Imagine, and we and if you go on YouTube and you put in Imagine Zabig, you'll see what we did.
And that got me into making documentaries because what happened is that like, they would say, okay, we want to show, we want to be able to demonstrate the high definition uh, and we love Hollywood. So why don't we find a, a film we can do that we can use all the great clips from Hollywood movies and transfer them to high definition so we can show them on the big screens in Japan. And I then you know, produced and co-directed with Todd McCarthy, uh, Visions of Light, which was a, a documentary on the history of film through the eyes of cinematographers. And that was, the, that was high definition. That, and so I started, that was my first documentary. And that really got you going. Well, yeah. I, I want to make sure we touch on a few things here. Yes. So I want to yeah. circle back uh, okay. a few things that I find very interesting about your past. Yeah. I want to circle back though to May Pang. And I okay. want, I, sure. Given your story and everything, what was it about her story specifically? Was okay. it she had worked with, you know, Yoga, but what was it about her story that made you want to get involved as a director? So May is a story that is very unique because there is no, she's not a performer. She doesn't have, there's no video of her you know, uh, in life out there. She's a, she's an, she's a ghost in a sense, you know? And for me, isn't a story, I knew the reality of the story and I read about her book and this was fabulous materials. So the ability to find someone who had never threw anything away, who photographed all these things all together, right. who had all this material, it was just a kind of just rush of, wow, that now, you know, and it was an obstacle because we knew we couldn't get here. Certainly Yoko wasn't going to give us any, you know, things from her archives because she didn't want this really to be seen and, talked about so may had her own archives and right. so that's where we started to build and what i do when i you know any project is i start off with the bible i have a what what i mean by that is i have a chronology of every day in her life from so so that i could put together through sources or information so so i create so that's the bible so realize that this was a real opportunity to tell history in a way that was very intimate and very private. Yeah. Very. And, and you had already read her books. You had yeah. some idea of her story. Was there anything that truly surprised you in putting this film together that you had no idea about? Well, you know, what, what really surprised me, and I think it comes across in, you know, the decisions we made in doing this film, was that May... That this this time of her life has been is her life, and she's lived it over and over again, and she's lived it, and she's and, and she's given herself and telling the story. She's she's beloved by so many people in the music industry. She's had you know she 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 continues with this upbeat feeling, you know. And she married David Bowie's producer. That was her, right. her husband, you know. And so she you know she she 
And she loved being in that world. You know, she wasn't a musician. She wasn't a muse in a sense, but she was a, a rock. And so these people need to be told. These stories of these kinds of people need to be told. And, they, and they're not told because they don't have usually the visual material to back it up. That's why so much of documentary filmmaking about music is sort of soft because it's mostly a, 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 a kind of, you know, uh, approved by the estates. So you right. you really don't have an independent uh, position on this. Well, and, and to your point there, um, she was very raw and very candid about her entire story. And it made yeah. me wonder, and maybe you don't know yet, but what was Yoko's response? to this? Oh, well, I think, you know, Yoko, what's really interesting is Yoko has known this story, you know, for years, yeah. for the next year. And, but she's never, you know, May's reached out to her, she's never reached back, you know. But more than that, and I had a conversation with May one time, and May said to me, said that, you know, Yoko is not going to say anything about this because Yoko doesn't know what I know or don't know. Here's somebody who's with John Lennon for 18 months, who, who seems intimate, you know, what, who, what did he say? What did he talk about? Yoko has no idea. Mm -hmm. of what May knows about mm -hmm. her life or what the, you know, what the private moments have done. So she's not going to ruffle May's feathers. She doesn't, she wants to ignore her. And it's really interesting. And I think that's, you know, that's part of, you know, that's fine. You know, yeah. you know, it's her perspective, but, and we didn't want to, you know, our film was not, we we're not saying this is a memoir rather than an objective documentary in a sense. And what's really, I found out about that whole experience is how deep that emotional connection. I mean, you you may you talk to May, and she can get herself right back to that moment. She can have that same feelings of, of neglect or love or or whatever. She has that real emotional ability, and I think that's you know some people have that where you can literally re get put yourself back into those critical moments and tr sometimes tra traumatic, sometimes beloved, sometimes joyous moments. And you feel almost the same things you felt at that time uh, today, you know, and that's what makes people cry and must make people well up because they just see an image that triggers that kind of uh, narrative. You know? somewhat intimately connected with it. I mean, you just talked about uh, Imagine with Yoko, but then also uh, the Beatles. You yeah. did this documentary with Ron Howard. What happened with Eight Days a Week, the story of Eight Days a Week is, is, is interesting and a little controversial uh, in a sense. But so when I started making films, I did, you know, Visions of Light. And then I, what happened is I, uh, after Visions of Light, this was about uh, early, mid nineties. Uh, I was working in New York. You know, and I got, a, I got an offer to go to Canada 
to become a series producer for a documentary series of a company that I knew, uh, which was a for Discovery Channel for an A and E, right? So what happened is I went to Canada. I, went, I moved to Canada in '97 to Toronto, uh, and started working out of out of my productions were out of Toronto. So the first one I did up there, which was a sequel after Visions of Light was called Hollywoodism, Jews, Movies, and the American Dream. And it's the book, of Neil Gabler's book, about how, and the opening of, of the film is a, a card which says, the, the heads of all the Hollywood studios were born within 500 miles of each other, and they all ended up 10 miles of each other in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so it was the story of all these immigrant Jews Warner Brothers, the Lemleys, and the, all these people coming to Hollywood and created, you know, and this was the book Neil Gaiman. So what I did, because I had done Business of Light, had all these clips in it uh, that that basically, uh, I, I, you know, I was one, I get co-directed with uh, with somebody in Cal in in, Canada, in Toronto. We put together basically a documentary, which was it's uh, you can still see it. it's it's on Amazon. It's called Hollywoodism, Jews, Movies, and the American Dream. Then I started working on another film, which has to do more with, with the rock world. Was I, I sort of came upon this story about the fact that Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and, Jim, and Jimi Hendrix all died within an 18-month period. And I saw that as the death of rock and roll. And I wanted to tell the story and the fact that they all were 27. I wanted to link it to their age and to their experience. And I did a film called 27 about their lives. I started doing that film, actually interviewed all these people. And I got to the point where I did a fairly good, a fine cut. And then at that point, the, uh, the state said, you know, we don't want to give you permission anymore. We want to do it ourselves. We want to put, you know, they hadn't done, they hadn't really done the, the, the documentaries on the head. You know, this, I, I was cutting across corners. Plus I was dealing with the story that they weren't telling, which was that they all died of accidental heroin overdose. So I started to piece this together and I, I, I still have that. This film, which I did, it's a hundred minutes long and I was ready to go, but they pulled the rug out for me. So I'm you left. done it a little bit earlier before you were almost done. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. That was the world. What happened is there was a, a legal case. Okay. And all of a sudden, the estates before this time were just licensing things to people, to MTV and all. And then all of a sudden, the estates said, wait, wait a minute. We have goods. We have we own this material. So now the estates wanted to make their own films. So the Hendrix estate wanted to make the film about the Hendrix, Joplin people. So they all started to basically say, we're not dealing we're not licensing anything anymore. Oh, so, God. Yeah. So, and that's what happened. So that's when I'm sitting there. What do I do? And then this is when I came with, by accident, a friend, a friend of mine who worked for National Geo, National Geographic, mm-hmm. said that he was going to have a meeting with the Beatles, with Apple, because, or to show them footage that they found in National Geographic, you know, just as a, because they were going to London, they were going to show. It. So what? What the footage was was there when the time when the when the Beatles moved, uh, flew from London to Japan, mm-hmm. there was a typhoon that made them have to land in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, 
because because of the weather. So they land in Anchorage, Alaska. Unbeknownst to them, there's a National Geographic crew up there doing a mock documentary in Anchorage, Alaska. That no, those are the that the Beatles are coming, and all of a sudden they turn their cameras and they find, and these cameras are on the, this visit from the Beatles in Anchorage, and that you know that nobody had seen, and that this was great stuff for Beatlemania, right? Well, so cool. So we were, my, we were talking, and I said, you know, uh, this is really in, you know, interesting footage because it's very personal and it's very intimate footage. And I had known, you know, I know the archives, I knew the stories of the Beatles and all that, and I knew what footage is out there. But rock and roll was, you know, I was doing this with the 27 people, but I wasn't really, the Beatles weren't, I was interested in that group of 69 to 71 more than earlier. So, you know, and so I, I'm in a story. So I say to my, you know, I said, what do you, what do you pitch to the Beatles that, that hasn't been done? And then I sort of said, you know, and this is, goes back to this point of fact. I said, ah, remember that this, when they went on tour, 62, 63, 63, 64, 65, 66, that was six, eight millimeter camera, photo, photo photography, audio cassettes, radio programs, news programs, the world, all of a sudden, there's so much material Every day, everything of their lives were covered in this way. But more so, I said, there's a whole archive that haven't even been explored at all. And that is the people who had eight millimeter cameras at that time, who took the cameras to their, to the, to the, uh, uh, to the concerts. And they weren't, they were allowed to bring them in because there are no restrictions at that time. And the camera that, that was popular at that time was at eight millimeter and it was color, but no sound. So, and most of the Beatle aesthetic, people's minds, has always been black and white. You know, yeah, it's, it's always been black and white, uh, both in terms of help and Ed Sullivan show and all that. It's always a black and white. So, you know, I said, you know, the only, so I, I, we were talking. And so I said, let's go to the Beatles and pitch an idea. And the idea is let's tell the story of their uh, global. Uh, concerts because everything else had been done by the Beatles. The only thing they hadn't put out was a documentary on their on their global concerts. I said, let's go and tell that we're going to go find these eight millimeter films that people took at the time and bring them in. And we did, and they said, okay, try. And we set up in, uh, on the internet by 18, 2009 or 10, and we got over 200 hours of eight millimeter films of people just, oh yeah, I found this in the attic. And we and wow. I did this or that. And we started gathering them all together, the better ones. And we pitched the Beatles on the idea of doing a, uh, the original idea, which was actually Ron how it changed. And I, my original idea for this was that the beat, and this is my pop culture person coming out. I said, what this, what this story really says is the Beatles were the first mass market a musical group that were global mm -hmm. and that everybody, no matter where they were in the world, were responding to the same materials, whether you were in Japan, whether you were in France, whether you're American, and that was unique in culture. No, that never happened before. 
it was always your nationality, your ethnicity, your 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 nation, your area. Your, your it was always localized or whatever. It was it was never global. So I saw this that if you tell this story, you can really show that when their concerts from 63, 64, really created youth culture in a way that in, by 68, we're on the streets and changing the world. Yeah. Right? And so I wanted to show that this was the beginning of it, that the Beatles mm -hmm. going, and because by touching, literally physically touching all these people in the five continents around the world, almost kind of created a physical expression of global culture. Yeah, it really did. Right? It did. We pitched this in 2008, so it took a long time to get done. And in fact, one time it was supposed to be done by Cameron Crowe, and he was involved, and that didn't work out. And then my, and Ron Howard came aboard and, and eventually did it. But he changed the message. He used a lot of the material we found. And I went back and basically I gave them 900 items of, of archives that I collected on this, you know, because that's what I that's what I do. And I know where the stuff is. So I, and I gave it to Ron Howard, you know, on the hard drive, and then he would make the film. And his vision was different. If you look at all of Ron Howard's films, from the beginning, all, all whatever he's done, even the latest one, uh, it's all about how people come together against adverse forces against them. That is, whether you know they're against nature or against somebody, you know, it's about the astronauts coming together to survive. You know, right, right, right. He's, he's always, it's always family. It's always yeah. his notion of family coming, making a family together. That is the power of his films, right? Mm -hmm. So he made this film eight days a week, more of a kind of the Beatles versus the fans in terms of the message he was giving about they were they had each other's back throughout this whole thing, but. I think the bigger message would have been not that, but really a kind of message that these days, they, these, they, it wasn't about music only. This was about a, a paradigm shift of culture and that they were the, they were the perpetuators of this. And it wasn't just the music, it was just the physical expression of going to all these places around the world and all these people from the Philippines, Japan, uh, all seeing them gave them a kind of, it, it trumped their own nationality, their own religion, their own, and it became identified with age and attitude. And that yeah. was the basis of what youth culture was about at that time. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, that is an incredible message as well. And, and one that's so true. And yeah. it's, it's yeah. locked into a waiting audience. I mean, it, well, baby boomers were what, 90 million at that point? Half of yeah. the U.S. population. And so it wasn't just the music. It was right time, right place, right circumstance. And, and you know, one of the things, because I had done some other, after, after in between, actually, in the, in the late 90s, I had a project I was doing with George Martin and, and, and about the kind of history of, techno of music through technology. And one of the things I 
And this is really my first introduction to the Beatles was through this project that I had with George Martin. He wrote a book and then he would give lectures, come to America with lectures. And I got to know him and we started putting together some projects uh, where he he was going to be like the, uh, the host of a, of a series about music. And one of the things that he told me, which was so clear, is that all the Beatles music, up to, up to Sgt. Pepper, all had harmony and melody as the basis. And when you have harmony and melody, no dissonance, no discord, nothing, what, everybody's going to sing along with you. So there was the fact that that they merged, taking blues, which had no harmony, which had a dissonance to it, and then making a harmonic elements out of it and, and using melody rather than, you know, chord changes. That's what he said was really the magic of the Beatles, because everybody could relate to that. Everybody could relate to that sense of that musical He's right. sense. He's right. He's right. It did. You're right. It totally changed. But he they, they'd already hooked everybody in. Right. They right. had good songs. Right. So many good songs. You sing along songs and they're dancing along and smiling songs and happy songs. And that's what, you know, and that's what I've always, that's for me has always been the question. How do we go from this, this brief period of kind of explosion of creativity and, and, you know, and a new force in the world and consciousness and all that to in the seventies and the eighties when it, be, when it became fractured. When all of a sudden it became, okay, I'm for heavy metal, but no, I'm for new wave. And it all became fractured. So for a brief time, there was this period when everybody was singing with the same song around the same people, around the same thing globally. And that was unique. And so I've always been interested in how do we get from that harmonic, beautiful, peaceful place to what happened afterwards and, and how did it all crash and how did it come to, you know, come apart. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night. What is gratifying for me is that most of my works are still, you can see them, like Visions of Lights on YouTube, uh, Hollywoodism is on Amazon, uh, uh, Midnight Movies is on uh, uh, Hulu, uh, Eight Days a Week, uh, and and that, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll have this up. I think in September we'll probably have this on on video on demand uh, on Spectrum and you know iTunes and, and things like that, so people can see it uh, uh, at home. This was this was so much fun. I mean, I knew part of your story, but I yeah. didn't know <laughs> all of it. You've been there on the cusp of it as history has changed, yeah. and music has changed, and pop culture has changed, and yeah. the film industry has changed. You've been there for all of it, and you've been documenting. Yeah. The most part so thank you for all your work no no and you know what's really a very kind of gratifying most gratifying and this happens you know to me often this is really the kind of the icing on the cake that you get is throughout the years i mean i, I left academic life in 1981 it's a long time ago uh but i taught i said i taught about six over six thousand students 
So over the years, and, and as a professor, you don't know who your students are for the most part. You know, you know, they're just a face in the audience, you know. And I find out that all of a sudden, people like there was one moment with, oh, to share you an anecdote about this. So I, uh, I was in Toronto at the film festival up there, and uh, one of my friends I got to know was Bob Shea, who's head of New Line Cinema, and they were showing, they were uh, sh- uh, showing a pleasant film as the film at the at the Toronto Film Festival. So I go to the party, you know, after the party, I'm sitting there, I'm talking to uh, to Bob Shea, the president of the line. And the director is uh, Gary Ross, is the director. You know, Gary Ross who did Hunger Games and Lincoln and all that. And so uh, he, he starts walking over to, to Bob Shea and he sees me and he gets on his knees and he starts bowing. He says, you changed my life. You changed my life. Your course created, you know, made me interested in films. So, you know, and like, you know, he this had no idea who he was in the classroom or, and or anything. And then over the years, you know, people like uh, Mark Platt, you know, who did La La Land, Wendy Fetterman and Forrest Gump, uh, uh, Stacy Snyder, etc. These were students. And, and these were, you know, and, and, and I've, over the years, I've kept in, in contact with some of them. And every once in a while, I, I, just recently, I got an email from somebody who's, you know, read an article and saw that I'd done this movie and reached out and said, oh, I was a student of you. And they started to tell me how I influenced their lives and all that. And those are the, you know, those moments. Are complete. Yeah. So, you know, that's why uh, I can still go on and do this. The contributions you've made to the film world just by the students that you've right, made right, is incredible. Right. That's, you know, what else is there? You know, it's like, uh, you know, there was a book that was written, uh, actually, about, it was a book about the World War II, but the end result was that what we're looking for, everybody, I think we're still very much in the same, we're looking for symbolic immortality. That is, we're looking for something that's, that, goes beyond ourselves as, as, a, as something that we leave behind or that we create. And symbolic immortality is really a, something that we all have a, now more than ever, have an ability to actually do, you know, like what you're doing. It's, it's part, you know, you're creating a certain amount of immortality around the fact that you're doing these things that, you, that are, are separate from you as an individual, but are part of you. It's nice to think of it that way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thank you for be, being part of my uh, symbolic immortality. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Okay, take care. Down on me. Down on me. Looks to give a baddie in his whole round world. Down on me. Loving this All right, a big thank you to Stuart Samuels for coming on My Rock Moment. What an intelligent guy. Folks, links to all of his work can be found in the show notes. There's some really great stuff there, so I do suggest you check it out. Now, don't forget to find and follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks for rarely seen rock photos and info on upcoming episodes. And I would love it if you would rate, subscribe, write a review, however you feel so inclined. 
All right. Thanks again, guys. And we'll see you at the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.